Welcome to the Nonprofit Insider. On this podcast, we give a little bit more of a commentary feel to some of the things that are happening in the nonprofit space. And we're not just talking fundraising either. We talk about all the aspects of being in the nonprofit world, the people, the relationship, the news, the politics, and the money that all comes with being in this world. Stick around. Over the summer, around like late summer, early fall, back in 2022, I was kind of mulling over the idea of, of a podcast within the nonprofit sphere. And that was like the early stages of me kind of developing some of the things I wanted to talk about, the direction I wanted to go. And I actually had that podcast once before. I'll talk about that in a future episode. But that podcast, I maybe had about 20 episodes, it bombed. Just wasn't in in the space to really make it grow to what it needs to be. So with this one, I wanted to be sure to take my time and really get a sense of where it is I wanted to go with, with the podcast. And this was at a time, if you all remember, there was the hashtag quiet quitting, right? That was growing. You were seeing more and more of that. And me personally, in my own particular space, I was seeing a lot of folks in the nonprofit world turning over a bunch. People were going from one job to the next. Uh, I saw individuals kind of bouncing around, moving positions. I mean, I even know... One person who over the span of like a year had like three different jobs. And they say, you know, that's the best way to get more money. Going back to the previous episode, episode one, if you have a particular amount that you're making, you can make maybe an extra two to three percent, something real weak, staying in that role year to year compared to if you just bounce around, you're able to get on average nine, 10, 11 percent gains in the amount of compensation, right? So I was seeing a lot of folks going from place to place. But one of the things that really had me thinking about the nonprofit world that you you were hearing a lot of conversations with railroad strikes at the time. You were hearing a lot of conversations with people kind of do it picket lines, nurses. You were seeing a lot of like nurses being like, hey, we're working really hard and unions kind of coming together to help in the process of getting people in the nonprofit space better compensation, better representation, et cetera, et cetera. And it really had me wondering for the first time, and I've been in a nonprofit space for a long time. I mean, we're talking 14 years, I think, something to that degree. But it wasn't until last summer, last fall, I really started to think to myself, how come I don't really hear about nonprofit unions? And I've interacted with folks that work in unions in the nonprofit space, But it was one of those things I never truly thought about how much of how many people, how many workers are in unions or not in unions. And so I'm just doing like basic research, you know, typing in in Google nonprofits, unions, USA, uh, international, et cetera, et cetera my research and as I'm kind of looking around the landscape to see more about this particular uh, aspect of the nonprofit world, I discovered a really amazing article uh, by a community organizer talking about her experience in unionizing her nonprofit. 
and and the, and the, the author's article was named is uh and this was back in September of 2022 but I wanted to be sure to bring it back up in the nonprofit insider because I really appreciated the way the author talked about their experience. The article was very well written, easy to consume, and put you in a really good place of understanding the journey that she was going through. And so the article, the author was uh, by my my Myriam. I hope I said that right. I connected with her on LinkedIn, funny enough. Uh, Myriam Sabagai. I hope I said that right, Mrs. Sabagai. I might have not said your name completely accurately, so I gotta gotta reach out to her. But in the article, and an article was on this website called InTheseTimes.com. I'll put that in the show notes. An article was called be called, and I quote, nonprofit workers shouldn't be turned away because unions are at in quotation capacity. And I remember reading it, and she like I said, she talks a, a big amount of the article about how she is in Washington DC and she's at this nonprofit called the National Iranian American Council and she's talking about her efforts to find a parent union group to accept their nonprofit organization and, and their nonprofit only has five workers right so it's not super large in comparison to some of the big behemoths out there or even some of the middle-sized nonprofits and we're talking five workers but she wants to unionize these five workers. I mean, these four workers and herself, five in total. She wants to unionize and she's having trouble as she's going to various union groups. And look, I'll be the first to acknowledge, I know a little bit about unions, but I don't know as much as others, right? You think about unions, you think about different groups in the steel industry or the auto industry or mechanics or flight attendants. Uh, you kind of, you think of it in that way, but we've known for decades upon decades after World War II, the number of people in unions have gone, you know, gone down like year after year, decade after decade. So I didn't even really know a lot as it related to the number of people that are in the nonprofit space that are in unions. Like this was all kind of, again, for my first time really diving into that particular study. And as I read the article, I gained a much deeper insight into nonprofits wanting to unionize because as she's telling her story she's talking about some of the struggles some of the entry points for a lot of uh union groups and in the end she ends up finding a union group to be a part of i think it was the i b e w i have to check that here real quick but she ends up finding a union group she's able to be a part of this particular group um, yeah, and so she and she connects with the IBEW. I think that's the International um, Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. So she joins this group, and then like you know, she kind of is telling that story there. But the biggest thing, as I was reading an article more than anything else, it just really had me wondering why isn't unionizing a bigger conversation in the nonprofit space? I don't know. I don't have all the answers. Right? There's nothing that. Um, in my past, I've never been a part of a union at any point in time. I remember working with Walgreens when I was in high school and they had us, and this was like in 2005 or something like that, 2000, yeah, 2005, they had a sit down in the, the back of the, the Walgreens and like the little break room area. And I had to take like a couple of online courses and this was like on an old, big old, like, you know, Mac type computer, IBM computer. And then the, uh, message, it was like. At Walgreens, you may be approached about the idea of unionizing. 
at Walgreens, we don't believe in you. It was like something like, we don't believe in unions, and we believe we have a better opportunity to negotiate directly with the employers. And I remember thinking, this feels a little like propaganda. <laughs> like this was a little, not even just a little slanted, but like heavily slanted. It almost made me want to go, why can't, like I talked to someone about unions, but I was 16 at the time. That's neither here nor there. But again, as I'm reading an article, it just really had me thinking of why isn't this a, a bigger conversation? Because 10% of the United States workforce works in nonprofits. But according to Ms. Sabagai's article, just 8%, 8% of the country's workers that are in nonprofits are union members. Out of and that's out of 15 million. So think of 15 million. I don't have the numbers right now. Not a mathematician, but what is that? 15 million, like 435,000 workers in the nonprofit space are unionized. And then like another 13, 14 million or not. Don't don't quote me on that. I don't know. Again, not not a not a mathematician. Um, but she goes on to say, like, in comparison, 33% of federal, state, and local government employees are unionized. And you know, I wouldn't expect the nonprofit rates of union workers to be 33%, right? That's a different vibe when you're talking federal, state, and local governments. But you know, I'd expect to be close to like 15, maybe 20% of workers in a nonprofit space maybe being unionized, but only having 8%, I thought that was very surprising. So real good article, go ahead, check that out. Not gonna talk too much more about it. I'm sure we'll have opportunities to talk more about unions in the nonprofit space. She would be a really great person. So if you're listening to this, uh, Mariam, I'd love to have you on the show. And so we'll see about getting her on the show uh, after we kind of get our footing here. A few years back, I was working with a nonprofit, and one day I just remember being in the office and hearing some of my colleagues and maybe a couple volunteers, I can't remember everyone that was in the conversation, but they were just having, these folks were having conversations in an office, in the office, talking, and this was before COVID, or around COVID time, I can't even remember, talking about, they were wondering how much executives at the nonprofit made. And it was just a valid question that, and it's a curious question that most people have, right? Whether you work at a construction site or you work at a fencing company or you work with at a local school, right? You wonder how much does the principal make? How much the, does that construction manager bring in every single year? Do they have a better option, like stock option than me? Like that's just something that's just bound to happen. And you're seeing more and more expansion of individuals just having those types of questions like in the previous episodes. And so I remember just chiming in and being like, you know, if you're ever curious to know how much anybody, the top rated people at an organization make, you have the ability to see that in a 990 report. And I remember them going, they they never even heard, one of them had never heard of a 990. And like the other two or three had never even thought about looking at the tax return, and that's what a 990 is, it's the tax return of a nonprofit. And so if you're a 50C3, you have to do a 990 every year. And it had me kind of wondering, and it kind of had me thinking in the moment of how 10% of all of the United States workforce works in the for-profit space. And I would be inclined to say about 80% of all the people are in the nonprofit space 
do themselves a huge disservice, do themselves a huge failure in not taking one part of the nonprofit space seriously, and it's the money. And it's a little bit ironic if you think about it because there's so much talk, there's so much written and discussed and theorized, and there's so many brain trusts out there that exist to really talk about money in the nonprofit space, but usually it's in the fundraising world, right? How can we get more money? How can we make sure that our grant writing is really good? In the nonprofit space, they pay a lot of nonprofit uh, fundraisers really, really well. And if you were to just type in nonprofit in your Apple uh, podcast or Spotify, you're going to see a lot of conversations, a lot of podcasts around that type of information, getting better funds, making sure you have the best data to get better funds, right? And all that stuff is really, really good. But there's so much more that happens in a nonprofit space related around money that isn't just fundraising. Now, if you don't have fundraising, we know how that can go. But there's so many other aspects to the nonprofit world and money that really gets lost. And to be honest, I think I put a lot, I put a lot of that blame on us as people that work in the particular space, right? We are in a world that can, at times, sell us on various aspects. They can sell us on mission. They can sell us on working with clients. They can sell us on um, really creating a good product. You know, if you're in, I don't know, film or investigation, if you're in homelessness, whatever the case may be, they, they can have a lot of different focus on that. And we know the money can be a part of it, but this is a particular world where we have the ability and we really have to put it on ourselves as nonprofit workers to take this seriously, all right? And I think it's not it's not unusual. I think if you were to talk to anybody that, if you talk to a mechanic that works at a Jiffy Lube or a local mom and pop shop, if you talk to a government worker that works at the forest department, they would say the same thing. Like they don't really take the money seriously, right? They know when it comes to their compensation, they have an understanding of that. When it comes to their department fundraising or their department budget, they have an understanding of that. But so many nonprofit workers, and myself for a long time, right? It's just bound to happen. We care too little about the rest of it. We don't give ourselves the time or we're not given the time to really get a deeper understanding of knowing the operation budget of really understanding the tax implications, of really understanding the investment options that maybe our nonprofit spends their energy within. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity of learning, a lot of opportunity of knowledge that is really right there for the picking of nonprofit workers like you and I. But so many of us, because we have, you know, we have stuff going on. We have family, we have friends, we have kids we're taking care of, we have commutes we're doing, we're, we're in our own world, right? Doing our own thing. But I think if we were able to take even just 5% of our time in our particular nonprofit industries, a particular nonprofit space of understanding what that really is like, I think that would be a really, really good advantage. And to a degree, I think people are kind of scared or nonchalant when it comes to the money talk, right? For so many of us in this particular space, when we think talking about money, we think we're talking about how much do I get paid? Again, compensation. How much is my department really in charge of and how much are we fundraising? 
and to be honest, there's so many more of us that are like, ugh, fundraising. I would, I, I hear this all the time when I when I say, hey, have you ever been interested in going down the fundraising route? And people, you know, they know people know who they are, right? You can never know people better than any of themselves. But there's so many instances of folks that go, oh, fundraising. I would never ask people for money. I would never do that. And it's like, well, sales is a part of life, right? When you go on a date, you're selling yourself, right? When you go to buy a car, whether you realize it or not, you're probably thinking about what am I going to wear when I go to this car dealership because you're trying to sell yourself even though you're spending money, right? We sell ourselves in so many industries and in so many instances. It's surprising how many folks don't even have a little bit of a care about the fundraising space, right? We'll know everything about the clients we work with. We'll know everything about the office gossip that may be happening in our particular world. Yet when you start talking about, hey, do you know how much we raised last year? Hey, would you be interested in getting on the call and learning about how we bring in the money? There's so many folks in the nonprofit world that are like, ew. Like I've legit heard people say, ugh, fundraising, not interested. It's like, well, you don't have to be interested to be interested. You don't have to have, that doesn't have to be your job in order to understand. And I think that because the fundraising world can feel like a gateway into the nonprofit space, it almost closes the door on understanding so many other aspects. How much is the rent on our building? Oh, the rent is how much? Oh, I didn't know that. How much is the insurance cost for you as the nonprofit, if you have insurance in your nonprofit, because I know I'm paying, I'm paying, I'm just making up a number, I'm paying $400 a month in my insurance. How much is the company paying? Really being able to get a deeper understanding of that. And I think there's really a big advantage to doing that if you are in the nonprofit space, because the money tells the story. The money tells the energy, it tells the reality of maybe your particular nonprofit world, if you're like in arts, if you're in conservation, uh, if you're in social services, but it also tells more of the reality of the nonprofit world as a whole. When 80% of nonprofits get their funding from government, well, you know, what are some of the implications? What dives in to all of that? I went to college out in North Carolina in Appalachian Mountains, uh, shout out Warren Wilson. And I remember maybe like my second year being part of the service learning team. And my, oh gosh, it was my uh, mentor supervisor at the time. Her name was Deborah Kaliru. I haven't reached out to her in a while. I got I to gotta see what she's up to. And I remember Deborah showing me this thing called GuideStar. And I was like, oh, what is it? And she said, this is a way for you all as individuals in the service learning space to see what the tax implications are for nonprofits. And so I remember learning about GuideStar and being like, wow, like you can look up any 501c3, see their tax returns, see their uh, highest rated compensation, see what their mission is that they give and submit to the IRS. And I'll talk a little bit more about 990s, I think maybe, maybe like episode 11, 12, I'll talk about the top five things or some of the key things to look for in 990. But if you have an ability to look at a nonprofit's tax returns, it's gonna tell you so much more about the realities, right? And so, for example, I went in on two nonprofit websites today, just, just totally picked them by random. I went on Mills on Wheels, 
And on the website, I went down and it was like right underneath the About Us, they had tax financials information. Clicked it one time, gave me a nice little rundown, nice little uh, listing of all of their financials over like the last six, seven years. I looked at about four or five of them in random. And in addition to having their like, they had like their own little synthesized, almost like an annual report where they synthesize their financial report and tax returns and like a layman's type return. And then right next to it, they had their 990. Grade A, Mills on Wheels. Love it. I was able to see their base out of Arlington. I was able to see who did the tax returns. I could see uh, their largest expenses. And so it was just really, really nice. Went on, and it only took two clicks, right? Two clicks, that's what you're looking for. You wanna make it easy. Go to American Heart Association, much of the same thing. They had their 990 a little more hidden. They had their own layman's terms, financial information. Looked really good, very impressive, I gotta say. Um, but it was also two clicks and easy to find. So shout out to American Heart Association and Mills on Wheels, right? They both had it very easy for me as a consumer, a potential volunteer, a potential board member, a potential donor to see and have that information, right? That was really good. And I've proposed for uh, forever and ever, and I'm always gonna propose this. I think that all 501c3s should have their 990 uh, tax return on the homepage. Ideally, I'd like to see one click. I'd like to see maybe financial information and then right underneath it, 990. So when I click it, it immediately goes to a PDF download that I have the ability to see and read and consume. It'll take some time to do that. Some nonprofits are gonna be, of course, a little bit more hesitant to do that for various reasons. I'm sure we'll get into uh, more on the Nonprofit Insider. But I was very impressed with going on those two particular websites and seeing that. And so for me, you know, I I'll kind of wrap it up like this. I think the nonprofit industry is a lot more unique compared to the likes of, say, a government organization where the money and the numbers can just be so big. You know, if you are in California and you're trying, you work for California and you want to know the budgeting, like that information is available, but the numbers can feel so big and so gigantic that you could be like, this is just, it's just hard to kind of comprehend for like the average person, let's be honest. And then it's a lot different than the, the for-profit or for private companies, because a lot of times for-profit or private companies, they don't have to even share that information. So it's clouded in a form of secrecy. So for a nonprofit, you have the ability to just sit there right there in the middle, a really great sweet spot. And you can say, wow, I want to go to my executive director and I want to go to our operations manager because I'm curious to learn some more insights. And I think that's really what's missing. This isn't a way to scrutinize nonprofits. This isn't a way to put a nonprofit under the gun or anything like that. You're really just trying to get information, get knowledge, because as you're trying to grow, as you're trying to expand, as you're trying to make your nonprofit's mission a reality, understanding the money is a great part of it. All right, so one of the things I wanted to do here on the Nonprofit Insider is I wanted to have a little bit of a revolving third segment. So we'll try to start off each episode with the news, you know, six, seven minutes, kind of highlight some things that are going on, get into some of the main topics 
uh, in the middle part, some of the main segment aspects. But then I want to end each episode with a little bit of a revolving segment. And so I'm going to do a little bit of everything. I think I'm going to have a section or a couple times where I talk about some book recommendations that I think you all would enjoy, highlight some leaders in the nonprofit industries, highlight some nonprofits that are uh, happening across the, the world and across the globe. But one of the ones I really, really want to do that I think we're going to get some good traction is I'm calling it the nonprofit insider horror story section. (laughs) Because, listen, being in a nonprofit space, there's a lot of instances where I talk to some really interesting folks that have some really interesting stories. And we'll also share some inspiring stories as well. But I want to be able to take the time to just share some horror stories because I think this is one of the ways we can kind of bridge and connect with one another by getting a little bit messy, to be completely honest, because I know there's so many instances where people are like, oh, you work at such a big nonprofit and I'm sure it's all groovy and it's all good and you have resources or you work at a smaller nonprofit. I'm sure that's really amazing having the connection and the mission and all of that jazz. But I think we're all a little bit related, right? In terms of There are just many instances where things just do not go well. And being in a nonprofit space, we have that happen from time to time. So I've taken the time over the last couple of weeks, couple of months. I've reached out to my network and I said, hey, what are some of the nonprofit horror stories from your time being in a nonprofit space? And I've been surprised. I've had a couple come through. Uh, There's one that that I'm going to do here in about two, three episodes that you all are going to be floored by. But I wanted to start off on a little bit of a lighter note with one of these horror stories. Again, we'll have some inspiring stories, some really uplifting, motivating stories. But sometimes we got to get a little bit messy and sometimes I get get a little bit crazy here. So So for this episode's edition of the Nonprofit Insider Horror Stories, I have one from actually a pretty close friend of mine. And this is a friend of mine that I connected with way back in college and we stayed in touch. And so we actually had the ability to hop on a Zoom call and I recorded her telling the story. So I'm actually going to, you know, because there were moments where... We stopped and paused and I asked questions. So I synthesized most of what she was saying and sent this over to her. And so she got the good brief. And so I'm just going to read it straight through and you all, I think, will appreciate it. So she says, all right, Swim, I have a sort of kind of horror story for you that's not super wild, but still kind of wild. So one time I was working for a nonprofit adoption agency and was having a really great time. I had only been working for the company for about a year or so when the executive director had a bright idea. A company-wide building, or as a company-wide building exercise, we would enter our nonprofit agency into a local 5K fundraiser. Now, the 5K would support another nonprofit we weren't really partnered with, but the real desire was to have a collective goal we could work on together as a team. And it would promote a little bit of health and a little bit of wellness. The executive director said she would pay for all the registration fees out of her own pocket because she really just wanted to use the next three months to build a bond and have a common goal between us, you know, yada, yada, yada. It sounds kind of cheesy, but her heart was in the right place. And she was a motivating leader, so I was inspired to do it. The agency I worked at only had about 
15 people or so. So nine, only nine of us were even in a position, health-wise, life-wise, calendar-wise, to do the 5K. But over the next 12 to 13 weeks, I purchased new running shoes, used my phone to track the progress. This was back in 2015. And in the early stages, once a week, the nine of us would get together during lunch and walk anywhere from 25 to 75% of the 5K's length. We almost started, or we mostly all started slow, but by the end, I was feeling pretty good about the race. And for the first three weeks, all 15 of us would actually get together and just do brief little walks around the block a couple of times, nothing too crazy. Fast forward to the day of the event, and we are at a park that's serving as a meeting point for the race. It's like 7 in the morning on a Saturday, and despite it being late spring in the Midwest, the weather is really cold that day. The team, for the most part, was in good spirits. We were in a good mood. We were ready to go. Well, that is everyone except for the executive director. We don't see her anywhere, and we're having a lot of trouble contacting her. So after about 30 minutes of calling, reaching out to her, doing everything we could, she finally shows up. And it's like 20 minutes until the races were getting ready to start. And she gets out of her car and she is panicked. Despite all the weeks of anticipation, it turns out she failed to even register the nine of us for the race and they sold out of spaces the team at first was very confused, but the energy quickly turned on her. Everyone was like, what the hell is going on here? Is this a joke? <laughs> here we are. We're in the cold. We're outside on a Saturday morning for free, mind you. None of us are getting paid for this. This isn't like extra time. We're doing this out of the goodness of our heart. And now we can't even do the race. We, we don't have bibs. We don't have the gear. We don't have anything like that. She said she had honestly, she was, she was so excited for the race, she kind of forgot to register. And she would later confess that she wanted to wait to register the team in case anyone left the organization because there could be a lot of turnover in my particular field of adoption nonprofit due to burnout and red tape, you know, et cetera. And since the race was in a smaller Midwest town, in years past, she would sometimes wait until the day before or even the day of the event to register uh, with no problem. So the executive director, she is able to get us the ability to do the race because, again, it's just in a park. It's not that big a deal. So we're able to do the race. But again, we have no bibs. We have no efficient placement for, for our efforts. And we, and we don't even get the record of saying that we really did the 5K, if you get my drift. It, it was a oddly defined feeding and deflating feeling to accomplish something so cool but without the praise and the acknowledgement in the way we thought we would all get and to add insult to injury one of the team members got a sprained ankle during the race when they bumped into another person it was just all bad i mean it just really all sucked the executive director was visibly embarrassed and for the next week it was very awkward in the office but she made it up to us a little bit. She she purchased lunch twice over a seven-day span, so that was a really nice offering. I told her a few weeks later that next time, she could just have us do an escape room and skip the 5K runs. Good luck on the podcast, Swim. Excited to hear the first episode.
So she told me that she it was it was really funny because she had reached out to me said I have a horror story. I said, "Oh, perfect. We should talk anyway." And and I told her, I "Said, look, don't even tell me the story first. I want to hear it in real time." I swear, I was glued listening to her tell me the story. And one of the things I asked her at the end after she told me the story, which I thought was really really wild. She said she ended up working there a couple years later. But I just said, you know, what what was what are some things that you would like to share in a podcast? And she said that um, the average adoption age in America is six or seven years old, six, seven years old, and that the percentage of adoption goes down about three to five percent every for every year that's added to a child's age, with teenagers being the least likely group to be adopted. So she had said for those of you that, that get a chance to listen to one of these early episodes of the Nonprofit Insider and listen to that horror story, to go to adoptuskids.org. She uh, is no longer in the adoption space, but she still has a special place in her heart for adoption. So shout out to her and, and shout out to those folks that are uh, working in the adoption space. We appreciate the work you're doing. All right, I think that's enough for today's episode. You can find us on Instagram at the Nonprofit Insider, or you can reach out to me at the Nonprofit Insider at Gmail. Send me an email. I got it in the show notes below. We'll see you on the next episode.